Hello, my name is Alexander Joseph, and I write stories. These stories show up in the form of short stories, poems, novels, scribbles on sticky notes in the middle of the night that are unreadable in the morning. On this podcast, over the sound of the dog barking next door, of my roommate doing his laundry, of the heat turning on and off, of the sirens in the distance, I read some of the things I've written. This is American Wasteland. Hello. I hope everyone's doing well. I'm sitting here. There's snow outside. It's Monday morning. Just finished editing and grading a bunch of essays and uh, teaching demos. And later on, I'm going to test out this new generator that we got, and we're going to move some slash to the dump. So, productive day in the mountains. There's a woodpecker outside the window pecking out a dead aspen. Pretty fun to see. And I actually think I can see its nest. Um, It's cool to be able to look out the window and see just trees and snow. Um... I found this quote by Einstein in a Jewish uh, writing newsletter that I get, and it is, there are two ways to live your life. One is as though nothing is a miracle. The other is to live as if everything is. And maybe that's like a cheesy thing that people would put on like a little plaque and hang in their kitchen, but I'm thinking about that quote in relation to this book that I've been reading, Five Steps to Somewhere, um, the fourth step is what I'm going to be reading today. And in some ways, I think what was cool about the experience of writing this book and of rereading it and sharing it now is that while I was on this trip, I was sort of living as if everything was a miracle by writing about everything, you know, from Bulletproof Bob to, uh, you know, small observations on the road. And this section, uh, which is titled Coming Home, is, I think, a return to that sort of miraculous lens of life, which is just looking at these sort of moments as miracles. And that's a good practice for me. And I am not good at doing it all the time, but I'm hoping that I can learn to embody that more and more. And with step one being setting out, step two being getting gone, step three arrival, step four is coming home. um, I like getting gone a lot because it's just these sort of moments of noticing the miracles of the road. And I like this section, step four, because it's kind of the return, and it's in that same format where it's just noticing things on the road. And I actually can't really remember what happens during this section, um, because I've read Getting Gone a lot, but I haven't read this, so I'm looking forward to experiencing it again. And I hope you've been enjoying this road trip book. Thanks for listening. And without further ado, here is... Step four of the five steps to somewhere, coming home. I. When you are coming back and the road has spit you out and you are around a hundred miles from home, time slows down and speeds up at once. Being back in the familiar is a terrible feeling and the urge to just be done is overwhelming. The sky sags and the cars and trucks and RVs and the work trucks drive way too slow. But then you arrive home and the trip seems all too short. No matter how long you were gone, it seems like no time at all. And before you are out of the car and into the house, the next trip is in the works. 
I, I. It is a simple comfort to know the road is always there. It is a simple comfort to know that the gas stations and empty valleys and the desert's boiling sun are always down the road. I find a certain calm in knowing that I can always, whenever I want to, get gone and be left alone with the sky and plains in no time at all. It's too easy to get all sorts of consumed by everyday life and to forget that there are so many other things than the petty angst of white suburbia. There is a whole world to see and smell and drive through and it sits there waiting, just a foot press on a vibrating pedal away. I, 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 back to the road. I just saw a sign about an hour outside of Phoenix that advertised an exhibit on Pompeii and its fiery demise. Beside that was a broken down car, the engine of which a fat man looked blankly at. The sky around here is a dusty white and the air smells of something chemical being burnt. IV, I think I took a wrong turn somewhere and added about an hour into my overall trip. I think I'm headed east, which is where I need to go, but I don't really know where I am now. There are cacti on the roadside, round-looking mountains in the distance, and no cell phone service at all. V. Oh well, I'm a bit lost. Don't worry, be happy, just came on the radio, and I think things may be okay. VI. Remember that wrong turn I took? Well, I've ended up driving through a gorgeous mountain range pockmarked with cacti and shrubs and soaring vultures. If I had gone where I was supposed to go, I would be in some busy city surrounded by track homes and haze. Instead, I've got fresh air and a warm sun all around me. Sometimes getting a little lost is the best thing you can do. VII. Spent $22.93 on gas and $7.34 on a banana, a water, and a tea. Feeling very tired and sort of like I'm moving in slow motion. Saw a person in the gas station who was about a foot shorter than me and 150 pounds heavier. They were wearing a football jersey and short shorts. I could not tell their gender even after saying hello to them and hearing their voice, not that it really matters. They seemed happy and content with a 40 ounce soda and a pack of cigarettes in their hand. Good for them. VIII. My friend and I discussed at length my pessimistic view of the world and what nihilism means to me. As an example of the tragedy of the suburban commons and the sort of gray hopelessness I sometimes feel, I showed him how in the parking lot of his apartment complex there was a cell phone tower disguised as a palm tree. There is something so unnerving about that to me. The falsity of the whole thing just creeped me out, and I am thinking about that now as I drive 80 miles per hour through a part of this country where there are no trees at all, just sand and sky. IX. I stopped at some roadside shrine, inside of which were many statues of the Virgin of Guadalupe, as well as hundreds of pictures of people who I presume were dead or missing or maybe just in need of prayer for some reason or another. Besides some pictures were items I presume represent the people in these pictures. There were old grandfather-style hats and some wooden rosaries. I stopped here to take a picture, and upon snapping the photo, my camera broke. I'm not sure if the camera was cursed by the attempted picture of the shrine or if it had been broken, and I just didn't know it. X. I heard from somebody this morning that I haven't heard from in a long time. I haven't heard from her in so long, I figured I would never hear from her again. There are some places left in a daze of grief. 
There are some places I've made the choice to leave, but didn't really want to leave after all. There are some faces I don't want to ever see again. Not out of hate, but out of shame or latent hurt. There are lives intertwined with yours simply to cause pain and nothing else at all. There are some words that are never said, but a lot of those words don't need to be said because everybody knows what they mean and why. It's easier to blink out of existence than to die slowly. It's harder to bleed out and a lot messier. I've put a lot of loves and adventures to rest in the dry dirt. I've put many things out of their misery for my own sake and for theirs too. There's a cost to leaving. There's a cost to watching things you once loved die or fade away. There's a chance these things and faces and hints of purple in an otherwise blue sky will somehow reemerge down the road and sometimes they spontaneously do. I've never seen a ghost, but I felt like one in the gray days when some long dead relationship comes back out of nowhere. I've got goosebumps from the resurrection of these people I used to know. Now as I drive, alone on another reservation void of development and built of only dead yellow grass, sky, and stolen land, I think of this old friend. I'm listening to her favorite songs and wondering what's ahead for me and for her and for all of us. XI spent $18.79 on gas and $14.87 on a plate of barbecue brisket at a place called The Watering Hole. Out the window of the restaurant, I could see a man, most likely younger than me, wiping his daughter's face with a napkin. I could also see a cloudy sky, more than 15 lifted trucks parked in the parking lot, and a shredded tire on the side of the road. The kitchen was open, and I heard one of the cooks, a skinny woman with short hair, most likely in her late 40s, talking about how, after church last Sunday, she threw up. XII Stop for some coffee at a place called Junk in Java. It was the quaintest cafe I've ever seen. I bought coffee and two jars of homemade jam. The jam was a gift for the people I was driving to see in Taos, New Mexico on my way back to Colorado. While waiting for my coffee, I eavesdropped on the conversation between two young women at the table next to me. They were discussing asparagus plants. One of them mentioned her husband 12 times in a minute before I lost count. Behind me in line were two women, 35 to 45 years old. They were twins who weighed a combined total of 500 pounds and were both wearing pink shirts, white pants, and black sandals. The woman with the husband told the twins they looked beautiful. I thanked the barista for my coffee, nodded to the twins, and left. XIII. Back in the land of no service. No money or water or cell reception, no suburban sprawl, no skyscrapers. I tried to talk to my sister on the phone, but the call failed. The people I've seen out here in the plains and red desert seem to be moving at quarter speed, as if there is nothing else to do. The further you get out of the city, the slower people move, the longer the day gets. There is more time out here in the hills. There are more minutes per hour, less business in the air. I fell in love with the town I just drove through. I stopped for gas, then for lunch, then for coffee when I needed none of those things, really. I think I stopped because I felt the pull of a quiet life. If I had stopped there for any longer, I could have stayed forever. I could have bought some land, found somebody to love, and a blue-collar job out there in the middle of nowhere. I could have never left, nor would I have wanted to. Maybe I should have stayed. 
out here amongst the shrubs that look like watercolor droplets in a white-yellow canvas. Time has been spread thin like butter across the bread of blue horizon, and there is nothing to do but sip some coffee and lay back as I fly fast on my spinning wheels out of a town I've just begun to know. I will never return to that place. Something in my body knows that. I will never return to that place away from time that I almost stayed in forever. I'm sure in a couple more hours on the road I will have forgotten all about it. XIV. America is not dead, no. It's moving along and in some form, I suppose. It will continue to limp along for a long while yet, but there are parts of it that are rotting and peeling and abandoned and still. There are potholes and boarded up houses and people with cardboard signs most places you go. There is wealth and fancy hotels and there are trailer parks and methadone clinics and rivers gray with wastewater. There are billboards for casinos and there are national parks. This country is much more alive than it is dead, I'll admit, but there are many blackened and forgotten limbs of the system. The opulence of the city and of the 1% is made only shinier when juxtaposed against the hundreds of miles of flatland homes and nowhere towns consumed by drug addiction, religion, and resource extraction companies. There is a strange imbalance in these United States, and frankly there is something about these arbitrary lines and feudal-seeming class and race discrepancies that doesn't feel united at all. XV Mile 300, hour five of the first leg of the return. I've been driving alone on this road past ranch after ranch on which there are for sale signs selling land for pennies on the dollar. There is nothing out here, not even cows, just untouched and slightly rolling land. I've begun to wonder if I should invest in some land out here. I've been lost in a fantasy in which I've bought a hundred acres out here and I'm living in a tent while I try to build a house from scratch. Could I actually build a house on my own? I don't think so, but I have some basic skills and could try to scrap some things together. Could I make it out here a hundred miles from everything without losing my mind or starving or simply turning to dry red dirt like everything else around here seems to do? I could kill elk for my meat and grow my vegetables and spend my days working and sweating and spend my evenings writing and looking up at unmuted stars. A dust devil just consumed my car. Its spinning light brown splendor broke me from my made-up homesteader life. Maybe I could make it or maybe I would be too alone to function. The funny thing is that the most alone I've ever felt was in the biggest city I've ever lived in surrounded by people. I don't think human contact is the only factor in loneliness. I think if I did move out here to the sticks and stones and vast western sky, I wouldn't feel very alone at all. XVI The last hour I've been feeling my breakup. It's not a sadness as much as it is a slight weight which hangs and hurts in a frustrating way. My ex-lover said she just couldn't commit in the way we both knew she needed to, and frankly I get it. It sucks to care. It hurts to care about things other than yourself. It hurts to worry about others. It hurts to live. It's also the greatest thing you can do in this life, care for others. It's also terrifying. Betrayal is the worst pain I've felt and I feel it often, but it's worth it to feel the love of others, to know that you are helping make a positive impact on the lives of those you love. So fine. She couldn't find it in her to care 
enough or at all. I get it, but I won't yield to fear. As the overquoted vagabond Alexander Supertramp said, experiences are best when shared. And what better to share than the everyday glory and grit of a life lived fully and without fear? I am better off without her. It's a hard thing to say, I guess, but I know somewhere deep down that it's true, and I always did. These next couple of miles I will spend screaming out at the wind, trying to release this weight and vague pain she left me with. It's not even the person I am sad about, but the lack of connection and failure to find what I needed in somebody I thought could maybe provide it. But as one of my mentors says, I promise I will betray you, and that every great relationship has constant betrayals, but there is still commitment. And in the knowledge that everyone is constantly betraying each other all the time, and that love is about forgiving and learning to move past those betrayals that we all make, I will sit and drive. And soon I will arrive to where I will spend the night. XVII. It's morning now, and about six hours left of my trip in total. I got a new adventuring hat on, which I bought at a gas station. It was the only hat in the whole store, and it fit perfectly. I had two secret expectations for this trip. One was to do drugs in the desert, which I did. The second was to find a new hat, which I have now done as well. Success. Just picked up a coffee and a kombucha for $7.32. After spending the night with a couple of great mentors, I listened to some writing, got to share some of my work, got reaffirmed in my writing. Sometimes the craft gets too isolating and disenchanting. It was nice to recharge. Six hours left of the trip, but who knows how long it will take me to reintegrate after that. I'm sure way longer. The trip is not simply over when one has stepped out of their car or off of the plane or off of the path. It continues in your body for some time still. Coming home, like arriving somewhere, is more of a process than a single moment in time. XVIII. When I was younger and people would come visit my parents' house for a meal or for a few days, I would always feel extremely jealous of them as they piled into their cars and set out into the darkness when they would leave. But now I am the one who drives off, and I love it. I'm addicted to the feeling of leaving. In driving away, there is a certain freedom felt nowhere else. The feeling of hitting the road again. The feeling of constantly being almost gone creates a presence that is hard to attain. There is a deep breath that occurs in me when I set out and when I am on the road again. The words come and the air is warm, and the music is perfect and loud, and my seat is comfortable, and the car purrs beneath my feet, and the road is ahead of me, and the sky is white and beautiful. There is nothing like it. XIX Most of this book has been written on my phone or in a notebook with one hand while the other hand held the steering wheel straight. I figured if I were to die writing, then that would be a good way to go. I figured there was some great justice in dying while I was doing what I love. But while with my mentors in Taos, I was made to promise not to write while driving anymore, for it is not just my life that I was risking. I was convinced that I could swerve across the road and kill a family or hit a biker or so on. And they were right and I knew it, and the romance of dying young while doing something unnecessary was shown to me in a truer light than I had seen it before. 
being a romantic like I am, sometimes I can get overwhelmed and wrapped up in the romance and drama of ideas which end up being detrimental to me in the long term, but which seems sort of poetic or cinematic at the time. See, for example, most of my past romantic relationships. But my mentors made it clear that I'm young and have a lot of life left to live. What life that is, is rather unclear, but the fact that dying at 23 just for the romance of it is stupid and naive and probably not worth it. So, this is the first part of the book dictated and not written. I guess it is safer and riskless, but it is lacking some sort of feeling I get when I'm able to write. But I need to write and have pledged to not write and drive, so I guess this is my only option. There is a difference between writing something down and speaking it, but I think in the long run this new format will help me with my voice and flow while reading my stories in the future, and if all else fails, it could still save my life or the lives of others. XX For the last few months I have been taking Polaroid pictures of the people in my life whom I love. I've been capturing on film the things that I find to be beautiful, but in a beat-down and strange way that some beauty manifests. I chalk it up to the same real sense I get from listening to records or writing letters by hand. There's something special in the grain, and the smudges, and the pops and the cracks that make these old-timey things feel more real than their technologically advanced counterparts. There's something special that has been lost in the modern-day cleanliness and beautification of everything, and I think that people are beginning to crave the little corners of blur in a photograph or the small pops in a record. These chips and paint and knots in wood show a certain imperfection that makes the imperfect thing seem all the more perfect somehow. There is an art in something beautiful, not being exactly clean, and lately I have been digging into that in my own life. And I think this trip is in part an embracing of that sort of grain lifestyle, in that instead of flying to where I was going, which would have been maybe as expensive and way quicker, I decided to go on the road. And in that, there is a beauty, a noticing that is able to be had, a slowing down. XXI. My car has cruise control, and sometimes as I am drifting down the highway, I will click it on, take my foot off of the gas, and just let the car drive on its own. But there is a strange emptiness in letting the car drive itself. I love my foot on the gas and the vibration of the road through my feet. I love the potholes and the grooves in the line of the road that keep me alert and full of feeling while driving. There is a certain type of disconnect that happens when technology interrupts the flow of the road and of my connection to it. My car has limited technology, as it is almost as old as I am, but there are many cars and common items these days that separate us from what we are doing. I'm interested to see the evolution of the driverless car because in a lot of ways I feel as though anybody who has felt the call of the road and has heeded that call will never be satisfied unless they are in control of their vehicle. My trip would not have been as perfect as it has been if it were not for the fact that I kind of think of my car as an extension of myself, and the self-driving car would most certainly not feel like that. XXII With the end of every trip there is a feeling that comes over me the once and future traveler that feels like the trip never really happened. There's another feeling that occurs when you've been on a trip for a while and you leave a city and go back into the plains. This feeling is that everything else in the traveler's life doesn't really matter or even truly exist. 
Now I am back in the plains and have once again become hypnotized by the distant mountains, the bright white sky, and the slowly rolling hills. I'm starting to feel like everything else is simply an illusion or somehow unimportant. It seems as if there has never really been anything else, that there were never any other cities or people or jobs or grocery stores or traffic. There's only me and my new hat in the road and the wind ripping against the outside of my car. There's a disconnect between the real world and the road and maybe that is why I like it so much. Maybe I love the escape and the freedom of the imagined reality of this separate world. Maybe this is how it will all end up. Maybe in 100 or 1,000 years or however time works in these empty and vast places it will all look the same. I am sure that these places have looked more or less the same since they came into being tens of thousands of years ago. They will stay looking the same while humanity rises and crumbles and has wars, while people fall in love and fall out of it, while lives are shattered and massive fortunes are made and lost. These mountains remain still and tall. These trees and shrubs stay scrappy and windblown. The air stays dusty through the millennia. This place, like many others, this great stretch of nothingness, seems to be apart from time or more, have its own sense of it. XXIII. In time-lapse footage, you can watch as a little sprout turns into a plant, and then into a tree, and then dies and returns to the soil, all within a couple of frames of super sped-up film. While I was up on this mountain with my friend, in the hot and dry sun, I looked at a short, round, and reddish cactus beside me, and got a kind of sense of how it sees time. I'm not attempting to guess if cacti have sentience, or if they are just sitting there, or some mixed up in between, but from up there on the mountain I felt as if I could see civilization rise and fall like a flame burning bright and turning into charcoal and then ash over and over again. The whole process was ever repeating. The cycle of the sprout in its human form lay before my eyes. Maybe these mountains, these long-lasting trees, this dirt and the soil and cacti have all seen many great things come and pass. We all think we are so permanent here with our roads and cars and houses and fences and buildings and nuclear bombs. But maybe to mountains, the span of a civilization is just another passing second in a lifetime of a billion years. XXIV. It's a funny thing, time, the way that it changes as you grow. When I was younger, time moved so slow, the days would drag and the summer seemed like forever. And when you're in a time that seems like forever, anything before that time seems like it barely existed at all. In fact, when I think of the beginning of this road trip merely six days ago, it seems both like a lifetime and like no time at all has passed. It's weird how you can be on the road for hours and hours and hours and hours, 15 hours of driving, 8 hours of driving, hundreds of miles of empty plains, and when you arrive to where you are going, it seems as if you have simply just started. Time is a very subjective experience. Time isn't as finite as we seem to be so sure that it is. Sure, there are seconds and minutes and hours and years and millennia, but the experience of those measurements of time seem to change depending on the situation. I've lived through seconds that felt like hours, and days that felt like no time at all. And now, driving in these plains, moving fast, but having the scenery not move very much at all, it seems as if I'm sort of stuck in place, and has become clear that time is a lot less real than we all want it to be. In this world of facts and figures, it's easy to try and explain away everything we feel and see, but I think there are some things we will never be able to fully understand. XXV Just spent $19.34 on gas and on two bottles of water. 
Inside the gas station on the way to the bathroom, I saw a little girl who was less than a foot tall. She must have been less than two years old. It is unbelievable how small she was, and yet she was still a person with a personality and a very apparent attitude. In her hand, she held a red lollipop, which was bigger than her mouth. I tried to walk by her, and she sort of bumbled in front of me in the way little children do when they are just becoming aware of their legs. I stood there as she sort of wobbled three circles around me, suckling her lollipop and making sassy grunting sounds. Then she went on her way, and so did I. XXVI. Just saw another dead dog on the side of the road. Two people had put a blanket or tarp over it, and were standing around the tarp holding hands in what looked like some sort of prayer. This is the eighth or ninth dead dog I have seen on this trip, and frankly I find it insane because before this trip, in this country I have never seen a single dead dog. XXVII, driving through another middle-of-nowhere town about an hour outside of Taos. A lot of the houses and trailers and adobe huts have on the side of them a sign. The sign has a royal blue background and white lettering and simply reads, Betty. It took me a while to realize that Betty is most likely running for some type of local government position. I've decided that the best name you can have if you are running for any type of political office is one with two or three syllables that is easy to remember. For example, Betty. XXVIII. Three hours into the trip, I came into a town with a name that means orphan in Spanish. It's a fitting name for this desolate place. This place is, in a way, orphaned from the rest of the world. I've not yet seen a building that isn't at least mostly abandoned. The one building I saw that wasn't completely dilapidated was a cafe. Now I am passing a family dollar store, which is the first place that seems to be fully open. With the exception of a couple of gas stations, the town seemed to be shut in a sort of eerie way. I have seen seven people as I drove through this town. Two of them had face tattoos. Three others were at least 100 pounds overweight each, and the last two were an elderly couple walking at a very slow pace, walking alongside a skinny-looking dog down the sidewalk. Moving so slow, it was hard to tell if they were actually moving at all. This town and its people are kind of an embodiment of its strange name. XXIX, two hours out, stuck in traffic in the pouring rain, just wanting to be home seems like the last couple hours of every trip drag on longer than other full days of the trip seem to. XXX. Moving five miles per hour next to a bus full of tourists. Beside the road, there are some smokestacks spewing white-gray smoke into the air. It seems everyone in their cars is on their phone, including me, I suppose. The rain is coming down in hard pings on the hood and windshield of my car. The trip is almost over. XXXI. The more I drive, the more I realize that the excitement of the road is only felt when you are out of the city. When you're driving through some city filled with suburban chain restaurants and office buildings and power lines under a gray and dead-looking sky, surrounded by tens of thousands of cars, there is something missing. The excitement of the road comes from being alone with nature, being alone with miles upon miles of plains and mountains. The magic of the road comes from the blue sky, from the music, from the warm, rushing air. But in the city, if you open your windows, you're choked by the exhaust, and if you look up, all you see are buildings. So now I'm in it. I'm in the suburbs of some sprawling place, headed back to where I live. The majesty of the road is gone. Every tree I see is now half-dead or scrawny-looking, and the plains have been eaten up by the houses. The road is five lanes and is packed with cars. 
All I want to do is get home and away from all of this grime and suburban rot. XXXII. I'm back in the country again after going through a city. It is raining still. The sky is gray, and the water that is pouring from it is in thick sheets. Out here, beside the green and rolling hills, there is something beautiful about the so-called bad weather. There is something kind of gorgeous about the way the countryside looks in the rain. The colors pop, the grass looks more vivid, the little glows from the few houses I pass look warm and cozy, the mountains in the distance look colossal and unbelievable. But when you're in the city, the rain is depressing and gray and extremely wet. I think one of the biggest takeaways from this trip so far is the grotesqueness of civilization and of city life and the vast juxtaposition when this grotesquerie is superimposed onto the vivifying splendor of the natural world. XXXIII. I think what I mean to say is that in the rain and in the intense weather, nature only looks more alive and the cities look only more dead. It's got to be some type of sign that the very thing that we are made up of, water, makes nature look green and wild, but makes our cities and the man-made places which we inhabit look all the drearier and sort of fake. XXX, IV. One of the most common symbols of, in literature over the past couple hundred years, and I presume before then too, is the symbol of somebody going through water, being baptized in the holy waters of something great, being cleansed and made anew. There is this idea of coming out from this bath of sorts, clean and different and somehow something completely other than what you once were. It is now the third hour straight of rain through which I have been driving fast, and I feel as though the grime of the road and the not-so-thin layer of red dust that has covered everything is being washed away. My unconsciously picked-up but not unwanted souvenirs are slowly dripping off. The physical proof of my trip, the acquired grunge, is now gone, and my car shines in the rain-cloud brightness. All I have are the memories and the few Polaroids that turned out okay and those too will someday fade. Eventually this manuscript, if it is ever read or published, will too be forgotten, and it will be as if these six days on the road never happened. XXXV There is this theory, I think, that holds very true to travel, and it is that when one moves fast, whether on a plane or a train or a car or running on foot, it takes a couple of days for the rest of you to catch up to where your body has gone. With jet lag from a plane, you have moved so fast across land and sea and sky that upon arrival you are simply just a shell of who you are, or who you were when you left, and you must take time for your body and your soul and whatever little parts of you there are to get to where you just went to so fast. And in this state of not fully being there, a fever dreamlike quality is sort of put upon the recent traveler in the world, and all there is to do is wander aimlessly, almost zombie-like about, trying to get your grounds. And today I feel that. I feel a scatteredness, as if I have been dropping pieces of myself across the desert, which will eventually come home, but which are still slowly making their way. In a couple of days or weeks, or maybe a month or more, I will be whole and bigger than I once was, but for now, in this state of re-emergence, I am still being put back together. XXXVI The windshield wipers flap back and forth like a heartbeat, and the world is blurry with water and taillights. The red neon bleeds to red tears on my windshield, and the air is cool and wet. I am almost home, but these last few miles are long, cold, and busy with people full of worry and life. XXXVII Upon re-entry to the so-called world, or real world, everything seems much smaller than it once was, and somewhat sort of pathetic in nature. 
The stoplights are less long than I remember. The street is less wide. The houses are more compact. The cars on the roadside are dirty and broken down. The gutters overflow with gray water and empty plastic cups. The sky seems grayer than it has ever been, and all that I just saw on this trip seems far away and like it never really happened at all. Thank you for tuning in to American Wasteland. I so appreciate you supporting my writing. I am trying to write all the time, trying to submit, trying to teach and do everything I can to know as much about writing and reading and anything about the craft. And this podcast has really helped me to practice going through my own writing and also in terms of being able to share my stuff with people that maybe wouldn't read it otherwise. Um, And you, whoever you are, are part of that, part of my craft. As you can hear in the background, there's a siren and there's probably heat in the background as well. And that's kind of part of this podcast, the rawness. All of the stuff that is going on behind me and in my life is very much part of this and influences my stories, and that's why I leave it in. And the music that you're hearing in the background of this part of the intro and the outro is written by my friend Cora Feeder, F-E-D-E-R. Check her out. She has great music, great folk music. And yeah, uh, I try to get a podcast out as much as I possibly can. It's around every two weeks on average. Um, We just reached over 4,000 listens. This is going to be dated pretty quickly because I think we're growing and growing. By we, I mean just me and uh, the American Wasteland SoundCloud account and the iTunes account. So thanks again for tuning in. My website is alexanderjosephwriter.com. I recently updated it, so go check it out. Send me a message. Tell me what you think about the podcast. Thanks again for listening, and tune in next time.